The following is an exclusive presentation of News Radio KMAN, your home for K State athletics. It's game time. This is the game on News Radio KMAN. I'm serious. Every moment that we keep getting told that K-State's team is full of award winners just makes me that much more excitable. Maybe anxious is the right word. It gets me ramped up for that Friday tip-off for the Cats in Montana State as the NCAA tournament gets underway. Late night with the Cats on Friday night. Hi, folks. Troy Coverdale in this afternoon flying solo as Mitch is at Chuck Schwab's field in Omaha getting ready to call the Cats and Creighton tonight. Coverage beginning at 5.30, so we've got a shortened edition of the game this afternoon. K-State made the announcement earlier today that seniors Keontae Johnson and Marquise Noel have again been named All-Americans, this time coming from the National Association of Basketball Coaches and the U.S. Basketball Writers Association. Noel was named third team by both squads. Johnson was also a member of the NABC's third team. He was one of four players that garnered honorable mention honors from the Writers Association. Johnson and Noel are the first Wildcats to pick up All-American honors from coaches since 2011 and Jacob Poland. For Noel... The distinction from the Writers Association, yeah, he's the first to do that since Michael Beasley was named All-American by them in 2008. My goodness. It it just, we, we continue to see these honors coming in for this Wildcat team, and how can you not be getting excited and yet semi-anxious for what looms? Of course... The docket full tomorrow of game activity. Today, Kansas dealt with practice without their head coach. Bill Self was not visible during the course of practice today. Remember last week he had two stints. In fact, a week ago today, two stints placed in an artery because of a clotting issue, clogging issue that he was dealing with. Norm Roberts led the Jayhawks through their practice session today, dealt with the press scrum as well afterwards, and there are now plenty of questions regarding Self's availability to coach tomorrow as the Jayhawks open the tournament. I'm going to be perfectly honest as someone who has had his own heart issue, yet yeah, the fact that he's even potentially in the building 
for that game in Des Moines uh, is something. It really is. Uh, whether or not he coaches is not something that I really think is that all a big deal. <laughs> I, I really don't because he's coming off of freaking heart surgery. Uh, by the way, the Jayhawks and Howard tomorrow. Interesting, though, that all eyes are on that situation as we get close to tip-off. Fran Frischilla talking last night on ESPN Television with Scott Van Pelt. I had an intriguing pick to me for the uh, potential of a dark horse going into this tournament. It happens to come from the conference that he covers the most. I love TCU. They're tough. They're gritty. They should have been in the Sweet 16 last year, as you know. And Mike Miles being out is like not having Pat Mahomes or Lamar Jackson. I mean, that's how it was. We all knew in the league that once he came back, they could play with anybody in the country. And oh, by the way, they won by 24 now in Fieldhouse. If you want a, quote, dark horse team from this league of what's been an amazing year watch out for jamie dixon's club they are old by the way that's a that's a a, a, there's there's a lot of old teams in this tournament because of covid and the extra year but this tcu team is battle tested mike miles is back love this team k-state sneaky good too because they got two all-americans keontae johnson and marquise noel will make some all-american teams separately they're sneaky good too because they got two guys that can carry oh well, Fran just slipped that in there at the end, didn't he? Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. So that tells you what Fran's opinion is of where the Wildcats are and where TCU is. Interesting tidbit, by the way, as he brought up the age of teams. Ken Pomeroy today uh, had a rundown on uh, the amount of experience that is available in this year's tournament. Of the top 30 teams in experience, 16 made the field. 31 of them made the top, uh, 31 of the top 73 in experience made the NCAA tournament. As Pomeroy put it, by far the oldest tournament in recorded history and likely ever. That is interesting in the fact that you continue to see not just how uh, three and out affects the NCAA, but we're also still on the back end of guys playing their COVID seasons. For crying out loud, the the Groves brothers are done at Oklahoma. (laughs) Finally. After I first saw them at Eastern Washington, how many years ago now? Um, it's it's that COVID year added in is skewing that number, but it does tell you how important experience can be to programs when they want to get into the NCAA, and this goes back to really where we sat a year ago discussing what K-State's roster was going to be with Jerome Tang as head coach this first year. There were so many question marks about how that roster was going to be constructed. And 
in terms of the recruiting that Tang and his staff undertook, a big part of it was towards experience. And not just experience at a sophomore level or a junior level, but experience guys that had been around a while. You know, Bebe Igiola comes to mind. And while we as fans looked at it and had our questions about what we could expect out of players coming in, it turned out to be the right move in getting this program back on its feet much faster, I think, than any of us could have thought was going to happen. The Cats were, going into the season, picked for last in the Big 12. Did anybody really think that that was a wrong look? Now, granted, at that point we knew that Keontae Johnson was going to be in action for the Cats. But even at that point last fall, there were still so many question marks about the only thing that you knew about this roster and this coaching staff was that there was a collection of guys who had played the game for a number of years. What were they going to accomplish? That's part of what makes how this season has played out not just surprising, but historic. This turnaround is so dramatic from where we sat a season ago with practically no roster and a first-time head coach coming in. Now, you can talk until you're blue in the face about his experience as an assistant and what that meant coming in. I don't disagree that his experiences as an assistant definitely helped in establishing this program this year. In many ways, though, it was the ability to recruit from his position as an assistant that set the tone. He knew how to make the sale, and he did it with veteran players and shaped the roster in a way that he thought would work this season. It may not have been one. In fact, I remember we talked with him last spring on this show. It it may not have been one where the offense was going to be there at all levels the way that he wanted, but as he put it, we're going to be good defensively. The fact that this team has parlayed that experience into a complete 180 with this program going into Friday night's ballgame with Montana State really should go down as one of the top storylines of this college basketball season when the book is finally closed. Can they parlay that into a deep run in the tournament? 
That's where my anxiety kicks in. Especially after what we witnessed last week in Kansas City with the contest against TCU. And it's interesting. Because again, for all of that experience, for all of that experience, guys were trying too hard per their coach. Experience can be great. Experience in the slog of a season will win you ballgames. Experience when you get to the tournament is a completely different beast. And especially with the pressure of one and done on you. How you as a player handle that pressure. How you as a coach handle that pressure. How you as an assistant handle that pressure. It really will be interesting to watch this team coming up in this tournament. Because all of the things that we talked about for all of the experience that is there now, even the experience that has been added by playing this season, for all of that, this team now finds itself doing something that it's inexperienced at. The coaches find themselves in a position that isn't familiar to them. The players, by far and away, find themselves in a position that isn't familiar to them. Does that anxiety that reared its head last weekend in Kansas City show up again on Friday night? Or does the fact that the Cats lost last Thursday night and will have had eight days to recover, to recoup, to practice, to watch film, to do all of the things that go into preparation, will that week off have helped their ability to tamp down that anxiety? That's the question I'm watching when this team takes the floor on Friday night. That's the item that I think is going to be the most telling factor for this team in this tournament. Is it able to take what it learned from last Thursday night, couple that with it with its overall experience, and be able to turn that into a deep run in the tournament? Man, I love this time of year. I really do. Tomorrow's first tip-offs. 11-15, West Virginia gets it going against Maryland. So right out of the box, we've got a Big 12 team that will be tipping it off tomorrow. Of course, there are the two games tonight. 
And how about last night's first four games? Those were good, save for <clears throat> the fact that there were 50-plus free throws shot in the first game. Which brings me to a specific point about tomorrow night's matchup, or Friday night's matchup, between the Cats and Montana State. A thought left over some from our conversation yesterday with Coulter Nuanez of ESPN Montana and SkylineSportsMT.com. But a concern, nonetheless, that when we continue on the game. Troy Coverdale flying solo on this edition of The Game this afternoon at News Radio KMAN. I'll be perfectly honest. The week after the spring forward gets me each and every year, and I'm feeling it today. I am absolutely gassed today. I don't know why it hits like it does. I don't understand why it hits like it does. The alarm clock going off the way it does in my morning doesn't help, or when it does in my morning probably, you know, plays a heck of a role. But in general, bear with me. <laughs> Oy vey. Cats baseball coming up at 5.30. Mitch is in Omaha for the Cats in Creighton tonight. Then he's off to Greensboro tomorrow and will hopefully get a hybrid show going tomorrow afternoon with him live from the site of the Cats regional opener in the NCAA tournament. That tomorrow here on The Game. So last night... The first game of the tournament, Southeast Missouri State matching up with Texas A&M Corpus Christi, and it was pointed out by one of the multitude of officiating accounts that I follow on social media. Yes, I'm a, a weirdo when it comes to this. I'll explain in a moment. But it was pointed out that here we are, the first game of the tournament. And there were over 50 free throws shot. 35 of them were shot by Texas A&M Corpus Christi alone. Three players fouled out for SEMO during the course of last night's ballgame. Yeah, that was ugly. And especially in a game that ended up being a four-point difference in Corpus Christi's favor. There again, experience versus a team new to the tournament. But you're also looking at one that was the aggressor in terms of playing transition ball and getting things going. What... Stood out to me, though, in in the thought process after I saw this tweet come across. I thought about something that Coulter Nuan has talked about yesterday with us in our discussion of Montana State. And having seen Drabel Bello in action, the center for the Bobcats, who is a matchup problem for anybody in the big sky. 6 7 240 He is a he is packed 
he is a he's a solid dude. He is a solid dude in terms of his size. But a big part of the game that Montana State is going to want to play tomorrow or Friday night is going to be one in which they get the ball into him and hope to draw contact and go to the free throw line. If it becomes a game like what the opener last night was, that could be a little bit problematic for K-State. And I don't say that in you know looking at it from a bias standpoint in general uh you know saying uh, trying trying to you know blow up uh how good of a game that Montana State could play or not and and that fact I'm just noting that if you put yourself in a position where your opponent is shooting free throws at a number that is much higher than you then you're going to be in a bad position, especially when it pertains to the tournament. Montana State this season shot close to 200 more free throws than the rest of the Big Sky Conference teams did. The first three free throws that Montana State attempts against K-State on Friday night will push them to 800 attempts on the year. And they made them at a 76% clip. Again, their game is going to be about getting to the free throw line as much as possible. Now, that also means, however that they shot 150 more than their opponents in general on the year. 150 more, divide that by 34 games. You are looking at a difference of about four and a half free throws per game. So let's round it up and say five free throws per game more than what their opponents are have shot this year. That's still a difference. That's still a slim difference in a game where if you get into what they want to do, they've got uh, an ability to potentially grind out something by shooting free throws. means you have to defend Bellow well. You cannot be playing behind him. You can, or meaning do not get a step behind him where you're out of position. We have seen through the year Keontae Johnson have foul trouble at both ends of the floor. Uh, let's note this, both ends of the floor. And part of the reason that it concerns me on the defensive end is that you're probably going to see Johnson match up with bellow some not so much as what the centers may do but there is that possibility and if Johnson finds himself out of position could we see a case where foul trouble starts to mount once again for the All-American I know it's a complete hypothetical I understand it's digging into some of the minutiae 
But it is a concern going into this game, I think, for K-State. It has to be. The other thing that I'm curious to see, and, and the reason why this tweet caught my attention, this one was from an account that is critical of officiating. Doesn't matter the sport, doesn't matter the uh, league, doesn't matter any of that. It's critical of officiating. I follow a lot of these accounts, not so much for the critical part, but I also follow for the lessons. Some of the officiating accounts I follow are are more along the lines of having Gene Steratore in the booth talking about what the rules are and just what's going on and how they are applied. One of the great things that CBS has done is utilizing a guy who not only was a strong NFL official, but also one who officiated college basketball. They, they've maximized utilizing Gene Steratore as an analyst in talking about college basketball officiating on top of what he already does for the NFL. And I find that I find that refreshing, but I also track a number of social media accounts online so that I can learn as we go. Because it's interesting to me to make sure that I know how rules are applied in situations. But the critical side of it was so many stinking fouls called last night in that first game that it wound up being 50-plus free throws. If that is how the NCAA tournament gets called, it's going to be an ugly tournament. It will turn people off. It will take away the enjoyment of watching the games. I mean, there'll still be juice to it, but the more free throws coupled with the amount of advertising that takes place during the course of the broadcasts, things will get bogged down and we lose some of that luster off the tournament at that point. So here's to hoping that that was more a one-off or an occasional in the tournament and not an outcome that is going to, well, be the norm. Hopefully that one is against the means completely (laughs) as the tournament tips off in full earnest tomorrow. Again, two games on the docket tonight. In fact, that first game now uh, just an hour away again tonight in Dayton as the first four continues. With Mitch out today, a shortened show in front of us as we pick up K-State baseball at 5.30. We'll shift up the uh, song today. That coming back next as we continue on the game. How about we try this? Released in May of 1985. For those of you familiar with the game, you know the running gag with Mitch and I. Yeah, today it's a song that never reached number one 
because after all, I'm the number two on this show. Prince and the Revolution off of Around the World in a Day with Raspberry Beret. Much more poppy than what was expected following Purple Rain at all. An extended version appeared on Ultimate in 2006. It failed to reach number one because, well, first of all, the Durannies were hot. Duran Duran. Secondarily, the Durannies were hot in doing a James Bond-tied song. The theme from A View to a Kill wound up number one and holding Raspberry Beret out of the number one spot on the Billboard chart. Cashbox described it immediately accessible, melodic, and teasingly sexual. By the way, following his death, it recharted at number 33 the week following his passing. In an interview with Earl Jones, Prince noted that he had damaged his hair so poorly throughout the run-up to producing the video that the hairstyle was literally all he could do with it. Remained a perennial live favorite for his purpleness to perform in concert. He even went so far as including it in the One Night Alone performances. Warren Zavon did a version of it on The Late Show with David Letterman a number of years after. Hindu Love Gods Zavon had been a part of that group uh, in the 1990, and they had actually produced a uh, remake of it at that point, which actually was pretty good, too. Uh, there have been a number of other solid remakes made of it, but you get the idea. Repeat decides not to work on Spotify. Thank you very little. Uh, Raspberry Beret, considered one of Prince's finest songs. In 2016, Paste ranked it number eight on their list of the 50 greatest Prince songs. American Songwriter in 22 ranked it number four on their list of the 10 greatest Prince songs. Prince handling the vocals and instruments, except that he had thrown in there for good measure, a couple of cellos and a violin. Yeah, he didn't didn't have the knowledge on those. And of course, longtime collaborators, Wendy and Lisa providing background vocals, along with Susanna Melvoin, Wendy Melvoin's sister, who Prince had a relationship with in the midst of putting together this album, Around the World in a Day, Raspberry Beret, number two, May 15th, 1985, its release date, it climbed to number two, 
that summer. Ten in front of the hour as we continue on the game on this uh, Wednesday afternoon. The game continues at News Radio KMAN. Good afternoon, Troy Coverdale in Flying Solo. Mitch Fortner set up at Charles Schwab Field in Omaha, where the Cats and Creighton get ready to match up starting after six. Coverage at 5 30 here on News Radio KMAN. Couple of odds and ends out there this afternoon on the sports scene. One of the things that you heard the Dan Patrick show crew talking about this afternoon was the John Morant situation and just where his status stood. The NBA has announced this afternoon that Morant will remain suspended through Monday. He can come back on Monday. Essentially, it's an eight-game suspension when it's all told for the reckless display of a gun. More on that in a moment. But all told, the games that he has missed thus far, plus then three more, will allow him to return on Monday. So already he's missed five games. Shotgun willies never change. (laughs) The fact that the entire incident happened at a place that is notorious in Denver for a number of things. Oh, excuse me. To, to get it correct, Glendale, Colorado. Yeah, uh, Shotgun Willies is, uh, is notorious for a lot of things. A lot of things. It's also the most accessible strip club in Denver. So that alone tells you a little bit. That's where that entire incident took place. As soon as I saw that there was a press release on the incident, and the press release was from the Glendale Police Department that said incident of John Morant flashing a gun while being seen on video, Instagram Live, I knew where it was. The fact that the police in the release said at a local establishment had me laughing because honestly everybody knew where it was by that point all you had to do was say in a glendale establishment that this took place and oh by the way yeah we all kind of know where it was (sighs) shotgun willies never change (laughs) keep on doing your thing john morant back on the court starting monday We're back with Hour 2 of the game. Actually, a half hour of Hour 2 of the game. On the way, following your Dan Patrick commentary today, and of course, the local news here at News Radio KMAN.